Well, as I was making my pilgrim's journey down 37 this evening, my heart was filled with joy and gladness, knowing that I could worship the Lord, but in particular be able to worship with you all here at Second RP. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 42 through 47. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you, you can find that on page 911. And as you turn there, I just want to give you some context, what has happened in the book of Acts thus far, some highlights that the um, author Luke has given us. He's reminded us of the promise that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples, that at his ascension, there would be the promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then there was the discussion that Jesus had with his disciples about them being his witnesses, going to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth to serve as his witnesses. And as they wait for the pouring out of the Spirit, we see that Judas is replaced by Matthias. And then the day of Pentecost comes. There's a great rushing wind upon the disciples there. And the Spirit is poured out upon them and they're filled with utterance. That is, they are able to speak the language of those who are gathered there to celebrate Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And everybody hears the apostles teaching and preaching in their own language. And we have Peter's sermon given to these people um, where the Lord uses the preaching of his word to bring 3,000 souls to himself in a single day. And that is where we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 2. After the sermon of the Apostle Peter, now we're going to see what the life of these 3,000 converts looks like. So follow along with me as I read God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon the preaching and hearing of his word this evening. And Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it in our own language. We thank you that you have preserved it and maintained it for us this evening. We pray that you would open up our ears and open up our hearts to receive your word preached. We pray that you would be with me, your jar of clay, to accurately and faithfully articulate your truth. Amen. I need to be more healthy. How many of you have said that to yourself? Perhaps many of you even started out this year by saying that, I need to be more healthy. And so if you're like me, then you jump on Google and you type that in, how to be more healthy, and you see all these different fad diets that pop up. You see different exercise activities And some you'll find really good advice, and others you'll find really bad advice. But really, the key to being more healthy is very simple. It is maintaining a healthy diet and engaging in regular exercise. Let me ask another question. How many of you have asked, how can we get the church to grow? And maybe you Google the same thing, and a number of things will pop up. Again, good things and bad things. 
But the answer to both that questions is the same. It is a diet, a healthy diet, and exercise. And what do I mean by that? Well, as we look at this text, the text is not calling us to jump on an elliptical elliptical bike and be healthy. The text is calling us to devote ourselves to the church. And how do we devote ourselves to the church but by maintaining a good uh, diet and exercise? Because as we devote ourselves to the church, our diet ought to consist of, one, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, and two, devoting ourselves to the Lord's Supper or the sacraments. And as we consider the exercise of the church, we ought to devote ourselves to praying and devoting ourselves to fellowship. So this is the diet and the exercise of the church, and we are to devote ourselves to the church. First, by devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Second, devoting ourselves to the sacraments. Third, devoting ourselves to prayer. And fourth, and finally, devoting ourselves to fellowship. And what we see here is the beautiful simplicity of life in the body of Christ. And this is what the saints here were doing. First, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what is it that the apostles were teaching? Well, very simply, the apostles were teaching and preaching Jesus risen from the dead and Jesus ascended into glory. Now, we have kind of a sample of what they were teaching in Peter's sermon. It's Peter quotes uh, three times from the Old Testament and gives a number of different allusions to the Old Testament. What the apostles are doing is they're teaching Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, the New Testament had not yet been written. It's not as if Peter was able to open up the book of Mark and read about Jesus there. It's not as if he opened up his two epistles, First and Second Peter, and taught them Jesus there. Eventually that will come, but primarily what he is doing is he's teaching them Jesus from the Old Testament. He's teaching them what Jesus himself taught the apostles. And you remember after the resurrection, some of the disciples, they're walking on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, and a stranger comes and interacts with them and is talking with them, and eventually the stranger reveals himself to be Jesus Christ. And he begins to teach them from the Old Testament, from the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms, that all of these things in Scripture, all of the Old Testament, is about Jesus. So what were some of the things that the new Christians here were devoting themselves to as the apostles were teaching them? Well, perhaps Peter and the other apostles, they were reading from the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so what Moses is saying is that there is coming another person who is a greater intercessor than he, who will be a prophet for God's people. And notice that the text says, It is to him you shall listen. The very words that the Father says to the Son, to Jesus at his transfiguration. You remember the heavens open up? And the Father says about Jesus, this is my son, listen to him. Or perhaps they taught them from the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah, Jesus, would be born of a virgin. And they're showing how Jesus himself was born of the Virgin Mary. Or maybe they're going to the book of Micah and saying the Messiah, Jesus, comes from Bethlehem. Or from Zechariah saying the Messiah comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Perhaps they go to Passover You remember Passover from Exodus 12, where the Israelite saints there, they were instructed to take this lamb and to consume this lamb, but take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost to protect themselves and protect their firstborn from death. 
And they're saying the Passover lamb is Jesus Christ. He is the one who took your death. And this is what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Or perhaps they're talking about Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, the most high and holy day in all of Israel, where the high priest would make sacrifices for himself and sacrifices for his people. And he's saying that actually the Day of Atonement points to Jesus, the one who is our atonement and our atoner. Or maybe they're talking about some of the stories in the Pentateuch, thinking about the bronze serpent. And you remember that story in Numbers 21? where the Israelites are there, they're wandering in the wilderness, and these poisonous snakes slither into the camp, and they sink their fangs into God's people, and the poison kills them. And so they go to Moses, and they say, what must we do? And Moses goes and prays to the Lord, and the Lord says, take a bronze serpent, skewer it on a pole, and stick it up in the air, so that when everybody looks upon that bronze serpent, they will be healed. And this is what Jesus says about him in John chapter 3. Remember, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he says to him in verse 14, talking about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. And he says, So too must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so as we are devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we're devoting ourselves to the Old Testament and to the New Testament. We're devoting ourselves to Jesus Christ. Now, how do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching today? Well, it's through the preached word. Now, there is a bit of work that goes into preparing a sermon. And there ought to be a bit of work that goes into hearing a sermon, to receiving and listening to a sermon. None of us, when we eat food, eat it passively. You have to chew the food, taste the food, swallow the food, digest the food. And this is what you are to do as you devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching through the preached word. You are to consume it and to meditate on it. Here are some ways that you can do so. First, you can do so by diligently preparing yourself beforehand. The church sends out news and views every Friday, and you see who is preaching and what the text is. And it is incumbent upon you to look at that and to read the text, consider what's going on before, consider what's going on afterwards, consider all of the context as you prepare yourself to receive the preached word. And as the word is being preached, you ought to be attentive. You ought to be listening. You ought to be thinking. You ought to be comparing what is being said from the pulpit with other places in Scripture. You ought to be like the Bereans of old, examining Scripture with Scripture. And as you receive this sermon, as you receive the preached word from this pulpit, you ought to do so with faith, with love, with meekness, with readiness of mind as the word of God comes upon you. And then as you leave this evening, you ought to be meditating and conferring on it, thinking about it, hiding it in your heart, and thinking about Christ and how you ought to respond to the imperatives and to the indicatives that the Lord gives us. Now, why should you devote yourself to their teaching, to the apostles' teaching? Well, remember, they are witnesses of Jesus' ministry. They were there at his baptism, all throughout his ministry. They observed the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then the ascension. And this is what Jesus tells them. You are my witnesses. You are to go forth and to preach my word. And we see that as they do that, the Spirit comes upon them and inspires them in their preaching and in their writing of a scripture. And this is what they're commissioned to do. This is what Jesus says to Peter in John 21. Feed my lambs. 
our diet must be apostolic doctrine and not man-made tradition. Now, the next part of our diet as we devote ourselves to the church is to devote ourselves to the sacraments. And look, this is what they do here with the breaking of bread. Now, before we get there, perhaps more um, foundationally, what is a sacrament? Well, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ for his church. It is a sign and seal that signifies and exhibits to those who partake of these sacraments that they are in the covenant of grace and that they receive all the benefits of the covenant of grace. The sacraments serve to strengthen and increase our faith. And they serve as a testament to our love and communion with one another, with the church, and Christ's communion with us as well. And so we see that they're here breaking bread. Now, there are many expressions to talk about the sacrament, to talk about the Lord's Supper. We use the term communion. We use the term sacrament. We talk about the table. And in this particular case, it is the breaking of bread. Now, you hear sacraments plural. Where is baptism here? We see the breaking of bread, but where is baptism? Well, remember the context, what has already taken place here. After Peter has been preaching to these 3,000 people, and he tells them, you crucified Jesus. We see that the Spirit begins to work on them, and work on their heart, and regenerate them, so that they respond then to the preaching of God's word, and they ask, what must we do? And Peter says, repent. And be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so we see this take place here earlier in the book of Acts. And so baptism really is a sign of entrance into the covenant community. And the Lord's Supper here is a sign of continuance in the covenant community. And so maybe we ought to ask then, what exactly is the Lord's Supper? Now we know, yes, it is the eating of bread and it is the drinking of wine. But what actually is it? What does it mean? What does it do? Well, there are four main views out there about what the Lord's Supper is, and perhaps you've heard of these, and let's just go through all four of them very briefly. The first view is that of transubstantiation, and this is the Roman Catholic view. And in this view, they say that the bread and the wine physically, really, actually become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but as they physically are the body and blood of Jesus Christ, they still look like bread, they smell like wine, they taste like these things. So there's a double miracle going on here. Now, perhaps you've heard the phrase hocus pocus, if you've ever seen a magician do any type of trick. And the term hocus pocus actually comes from the practice of transubstantiation because in the Roman Catholic Latin Mass, as they are trying to set apart the elements, they say hoc est corpus meum, which means this is my body. And so we get this hocus pocus kind of thing because there's some mystical transformation that's taking place here. And what is so egregious about this view is that in the Catholic Mass, in this view, transubstantiation, Jesus is being re-sacrificed over and over and over again. Now, there are a number of problems with this. Perhaps you're thinking of some in your own mind. The first is Scripture itself. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. But Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. And he sat down at the right hand of God, 
waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has protected or perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so the problem with this view of transubstantiation is it completely does away with the efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus, saying that it needs to be done not once, as Jesus himself says, but over and over and over again. This is not the diet of the early church. This is not devoting ourselves to the sacraments. The second view is that of consubstantiation. And this is the view held by most Lutherans, if not all Lutherans. And what the Lutherans say when they're talking about the Lord's Supper is that, no, Jesus is not physically the bread and the wine, but he is in, with, under, and above the elements. In, with, under, and above the bread and the wine. Now, they will, to their credit, say this is not transubstantiation, particularly in their theology of the Supper. But when they explain it, it does sound an awful lot like transubstantiation. But the difference is, the way that they would talk about it, if you were talking to your Lutheran friend on the street and you were asking him this question, they would give this illustration. Consider a sponge and consider water. When you take a sponge and you get it wet, the sponge is not the water, the water is not the sponge, but the water is in, with, under, and above the sponge. And that's how they would explain it. And that's fair enough. But when you think more deeply about what their doctrine is, they hold to this idea of the ubiquitous nature of Jesus. Now, that sounds like a word that you would use if you were wearing a monocle and a top hat. But really, really, all that means is that Jesus, in his exaltated state, is omnipresent. That is, Jesus' body is in, with, under, and above everything. Now, again, there are some problems with that. First, consider the very first institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, where Jesus sets apart the elements and he gives us this sacrament, and he is in his not exaltated state, but still in his state of humiliation. Is the bread and the wine, is Jesus in, with, under, and above those? But maybe even more significantly, if this doctrine of the ubiquitous nature of Christ is true, that is, Jesus in his exaltated, incarnated state, is everywhere, how then does that um, protect us from the doctrine of pantheism, that God is in everything and everything? Well, I don't think that it does. The third view, and probably the most wide-held view in Protestant circles, is that of the memorial view. This is held by most Protestant evangelicals today, and they would say that the bread and the wine has no spiritual significance. All that they do is they serve to remind us what Jesus did on the cross. And they rightly say that Jesus cannot be physically present in the elements because he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, the problem comes in with this view is that it is an overly simplistic view. It doesn't quite go all the way. If it is simply a bare memorial or bare reminder of what Jesus did on the cross, why do we need it? Because we have the Gospels. We have the Scriptures. And it fails to adequately account for the spiritual significance of the table. So that then leads us to the fourth view of the Lord's Supper. I've gone through four. We've heard three that are wrong. So now we're at the fourth, so this one has to be right, right? And it is that of spiritual presence. And this is held by any and all Reformed denominations. And as we partake in the visible elements, we inwardly, by faith, spiritually 
not corporally feed on the body of Christ. Jesus is with us, not carnally, but spiritually present. And by taking communion, the Holy Spirit then spiritually raises us up to heaven to partake in the supper with Jesus. Now, why go through all of that? Why spend the time distinguishing between these four views? Well, what happens if you eat poison? You die. What happens if you eat something you're allergic to? You grow sick. You vomit. Perhaps your lungs begin to swell up. What happens if you eat junk food? You become malnourished. Having a proper view and practice of communion is important because it is the spiritual nourishment of our souls, and it reminds us of our union and our communion with Jesus. Now, as we are devoted to the church, we are devoted to the church by being devoted to apostolic doctrine, by being devoted to the sacraments, the regular practice of breaking of bread. This is our diet. Now, let us consider our exercise and that of being devoted to prayer and being devoted to fellowship. So as we consider prayer, what's one of the most basic foundational questions you might ask as a Christian, whether a mature Christian or a brand new Christian? How do I pray? This is what the disciples asked Jesus in Luke 11. They go to him and they say, Teacher, Rabbi, teach us to pray. And following that question, then, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, and he teaches us how to pray. And this is what Gordon Ketty, the former pastor of Southside Reformed Presbyterian Church, says about prayer. Corporate prayer is one of the universal essentials of a healthy church life, as well as a vital component of the individual Christian. So if we do not have this healthy exercise of prayer, we are missing an essential element of the church and a vital component of our own personal Christian walk. Now, I want you to think about this as you engage in prayer. I want you to think about the nature of God. And there are certain things that we recognize in prayer, even if we don't realize we're recognizing them. And so every time that you engage in prayer, you are saying that God is is a personal God. That is, he cares about you. He cares about your life. He wants to hear from you, and he's involved in your life with you. It's not as if God has created all things and then stepped back and just watched what happens. God is intimately and personally involved in your life and in the life of his church. Another thing that we recognize when we're engaged in prayer is that God is an omnipotent being. That is, he has the power and the ability to answer our prayers. Third, we understand in our prayers that he is an omnipresent being, that he is everywhere. It doesn't matter what time of day you pray. It doesn't matter the location that you pray. God always hears your prayer because he is omnipresent. Fourth, we recognize in prayer that he is a benevolent God, that he is a good God, that he is pleased to hear your prayers and to answer your prayers. And fifth, God is a just God. As we bring our prayers to him and we talk about the evils of the world and the cares and concerns that we have, God cares about sin. He cares about iniquity and he is a just and holy God. Now we could go on and on, but these are some of the subconscious recognitions that we have when we pray. 
And I want you to consider the Trinitarian aspect of prayer as well. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And Abrockle, in his systematic theology, commenting on this, he says, Prayer is the expression of holy desire to God in the name of Christ, which, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, proceeds from a regenerated heart, along with a request for the fulfillment of those desires. So again, we see this Trinitarian formula, at least, regarding our prayers. To the Father, by the Son, or through the Son, by the Spirit. However, it is also appropriate for us to pray to the Holy Spirit or to pray to the Son. And John Owen, in his book, Communion with God, he speaks about this. But even more significantly, perhaps for us, even in our own subordinate standards, they address this as well. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, there's a sentence in paragraph one that says this, religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone. And we understand that prayer is an act of religious worship. Therefore, it is wholly appropriate to pray to any person of the Godhead. And as we consider praying to God, praying to the Lord, we understand that there are various categories and various types of prayers. We understand there are prayers of adoration, where we're reading in the scriptures or perhaps we're observing in creation and we're just filled with awe and we want to worship God and praise him for who he is and what he's done. Or there's prayers of confession, where we bring our sin to the Lord. We confess our sins to him and we repent of them. There's prayers of supplication, where we make our requests known to the Lord. Prayers of thanksgiving, praising and thanking him for the good gifts that we receive. There's intercessory prayers as we pray for one another. There's prayers of imprecation as we pray against wicked um, pagan people. And there's prayers of lamentation where we bring our mourning to the Lord. And there are all types of prayers as well. Praying publicly, corporately, praying privately in the quietness of our own home, praying vocally with our mouth or mentally with our minds. There's times of extended prayer. And then there's also times of short little flare prayers like that of Nehemiah. Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Lord, thank me. Now, why why does devoting ourselves to prayer matter? Well, first, it's an act of communing with God. Second, in our prayers, we grow in humility as we recognize our dependency on God. Third, prayer quiets our hearts in times of tribulation. Fourth, it is a means that God uses to accomplish his ends. And fifth, when done with other saints, it strengthens our bond with them. When you pray together, it strengthens your bond with one another, and that leads us into the next um, exercise of the church. As we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, devote ourselves to the sacraments, devote ourselves to prayer, and now we devote ourselves to Christian fellowship. And what is Christian fellowship? A Christian fellowship, perhaps it's uh, easier to observe than it is to define, but here is a definition. Christian fellowship is Christ-centered, mutual affection and action, including worship, conversations, meals, and all activities for internal and external expansion of the church. Let me read it again for you. Christian fellowship is Christ-centered, mutual affection and action, including worship, conversations, meals, and all activities for the internal and external expansion of the church. And we really see that here in our text. 
As they are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they're full of awe and wonder as the apostles are doing signs and and miraculous things, but we also see that they are selling their possessions and belongings and they're distributing them to those who are in need. And we see that they are having one another in their homes. They're breaking bread together with glad and generous hearts. Now, some will look at this text and say, here we have an example of Christian communism. And of course, that's not true. What's taking place is individual initiative of the selling of private property to bless their fellow Christians. And there is a giving and receiving. But notice, it's not just giving and receiving of material possessions, but it is giving and receiving of total selves. As we devote ourselves to the church, we ought to be devoting ourselves to one another in Christian fellowship. Now, where does Christian fellowship come from? Our fellowship is not like being a part of the Boys and Girls Club. It's not like being a part of Moms Against Drunk Driving or any other type of social institution out there, as good as those things may be. Our Christian fellowship is much deeper than that. Our fellowship, our shared union with one another, is rooted and founded in our union with Christ. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have been reconciled to a holy God. In Christ, we who were once not God's people are now God's people. In Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. And in Christ, we are made brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers of one another. It is only in Christ that we are able to experience the joy of Christian fellowship with other believers. Apart from the salvific blood of Jesus Christ, there is no Christian fellowship. Now, what does Christian fellowship look like? John Owen wrote a helpful book called The Duties of a Christian Fellowship, and he gives some 30 different reasons or rules of Christian fellowship. And we're not going to go through all 30. But I do want to bring out 10 for us this evening. First, believers, you, have a duty of affection, sincere, genuine love in all things towards one another, a love compared to that of Christ for the church. As we think about this term, loving, like Christ loved the church, we generally think of Ephesians chapter 5, talking about husbands loving their wives, and of course that's appropriate. But as you look at the very beginning of that chapter as well, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so we see that we ought to have a Christ-like love and affection for one another. Second, believers must maintain continual prayer for the prospering of the church under God's protection. We must pray for the prospering of the church. And we actually sang this earlier before this sermon in Psalm 122. And listen to verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. And so we ought to be praying that the Lord gives us peace in our fellowship, and he does give us protection. And Paul, in the book of Philippians, in chapter 1, as he's talking to the Philippians, and he says that in my remembrance, every time I think of you, I am praying for you in joy because of our partnership with the gospel. And we are gospel partners, and we ought to be praying for the peace of the church. Third, 
Believers must strive and fight with determination in every legitimate way by their actions and sufferings for the purity of the ordinances, that is, sacraments, for the honor, liberty, and privileges of the congregation, and in order to help others in the face of all opponents and adversaries. So consider Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith. And so we ought to be fighting for the faith. John, or 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So we ought to be fighting for one another vigorously and enthusiastically, seeking to protect one another from false doctrines and heresies that can creep into the church. Fourth, believers must maintain an unremitting care and effort to preserve unity both in general and in particular. And so there's somewhat of a balance here between three and four. So in four, we're supposed to be protecting the purity of the church. And here in the fourth reason, we're supposed to be preserving the unity of the church. And generally, we tend to do one of those pretty well. Either we do a really, really good job of maintaining the purity of the church, or we do a really, really good job of trying to preserve the unity of the church. But here, we're called to balance both in our Christian fellowship. And consider 2 Corinthians 13.11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Or Romans 14.19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This is Christian fellowship, peace and mutual upbuilding. Fifth, believers should engage in frequent spiritual conversations for the edification, or for their edification, according to the measure of their gifts. Consider Hebrews 10, 24-25. Let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We ought to be spurring one another on love and good works in our conversations. Or look at 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Sixth, believers must bear with one another's infirmities, weaknesses, sensitivities, and failings, and meekness, patience, and pity, and in providing help and assistance. Now, if you've ever been around a sinner, which you have, you're around them now, you know that we sin against one another. And part of being engaged in Christian fellowship is, yes, calling one another to repentance, but also being patient with one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Or Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself too, lest you be tempted. Seventh, believers must support one another tenderly and affectionately in their various circumstances and conditions, bearing one another's burdens. In Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
Now, as you continue to read that section in Galatians, you'll see, yes, we are to bear one another's burdens, but as the text goes on, it also says that you are to bear your own burden. So how do we bear each other's burdens? Well, this perhaps may be an announcement. I don't mean it to be that way, but Mary is pregnant with our fourth child. And so we're very excited, and that's one of the reasons why she's actually not here today, because of of the sickness that comes with that. And the last few weeks have been incredibly difficult. Now, as her husband, I want to bear her burden. But I cannot carry a child in my womb. I cannot go through all the things that she is enduring, but I can bear her burden with her as I seek to support her and the things that she's doing in the home, as I seek to alleviate some of the responsibilities that she normally takes upon herself, even as she bears her own burden. And that's what we are to be doing as a church together, bearing one another's burdens, serving one another. Eighth, believers are voluntarily to contribute and share in their temporal things with those who are truly poor in a way that is suitable to their necessities, wants, and afflictions. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. The scriptures speak for themselves. Ninth, in church affairs, believers must not discriminate between persons, but condescend to the weakest brother and perform the least service for the good of fellow believers. Romans twelve sixteen. live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So we ought to count it all joy when we interact with one another, even if our personalities don't jive. We ought to count it all joy when we converse with the children of the congregation, even if they don't provide the most stimulating discussion. We ought to count it all joy when we interact with those who are a sojourner, those who are foreigners. We ought to interact with those who have mental disabilities. It is our great joy and privilege as Christians to be able to do so. And tenth, and finally, believers should carefully and cheerfully accept the lot and portion of the whole church in prosperity and affliction and not draw back for any reason whatsoever. Now, if you've ever been a part of a church for an extended period of time, you know that there are seasons in the ministry of the church where the Lord causes great prosperity and abundance upon the congregation. And then there are other times when the Lord brings deep and challenging afflictions upon a congregation. And what we are seeing as we are devoted to Christian fellowship is that we must maintain our fellowship, whether in times of adversity or prosperity. There are two areas in Scripture where we see men abandon the ministry because of adversity. And the first is Mark, when he abandons Paul and Barnabas in Acts. And the second is Edemus in 2 Timothy 4, where he leaves Paul because of the concerns of the world. But as we are devoted to Christian fellowship, we are devoted to the congregation, to one another, in the good times and the bad times, much like a marriage vow, in sickness and in health. And as you are engaged and devoted to Christian fellowship, you ought to be devoted to one another in sickness and in health. So to summarize these, we are called, as we engage in Christian fellowship, to have a mutual love for one another, continual prayer for each other, 
We must have determinational purity in the congregation. We must have an unremitting care for the congregation. We must be engaged in spiritual conversations. We must be patient in infirmities. We must be affectional in our support. We must be voluntary in our contribution. We must have an indiscriminate service of one another and a cheerful perseverance through good times and through bad. So as we seek to land the plane here, as we come down on the runway, why devote yourselves to Christian fellowship? Well, there are two main reasons why we ought to do so. One is internal, and the other is external. So first, the internal. Being devoted to Christian fellowship maintains the peace and unity and a purity of the church. And second, being devoted to Christian fellowship is a means that the Lord uses to draw unbelievers to himself. And this is what we see here in the text. As the believers were sharing of themselves, the text says that they had favor with all people and the Lord added to their number day by day. The Lord uses your Christian fellowship as an evangelistic tool to bring his people to himself. Yes, there is still the preaching of the gospel. There is a call to repentance. There is still faith, but the Lord uses our fellowship for evangelism. This is our spiritual diet, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the sacraments. And our spiritual exercise is devoting ourselves to prayer and to Christian fellowship. This is how we are devoted to the church. Let's pray. Lord, as you have devoted yourself to us, as you have adopted us into your family, as you have um, called us out of Babylon and brought us into Zion, Lord, and you devote yourself to us, we pray that we would be devoted to you and to your body. We pray that we would be devoted to your scriptures, to your sacraments, that we would be engaged in a rigorous prayer and vibrant Christian fellowship. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.